that's not bad. As a matter of fact, it's pretty good, but not as good as it could be if everyone participates, whether you sing or just say the words, do something, do something. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, Amen. all you lands. So let's do that this morning. Let's go back. Orchestra, it's 47. He knew me, yet he loved me.
Well, I walked in the door this morning and somebody said, um, you got on your red tie. You're trying to look like Donald Trump. <laughs> so just for the record, I want you to come next week when I'll be wearing my Hillary pantsuit. Okay. <laughs> that, that'll be a sight, and that'll make me absolutely nonpartisan, won't it? Okay, I'm glad you came today. I hope you brought your Bible. Did you bring your Bible with you? Romans chapter 5 in your Bible, if you will take it and turn there, please. I've guaranteed a great attendance for next week now with that announcement. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Won't you stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning, please? And we have been in this chapter now for how many weeks? I don't know, a long time, but it's, this is absolutely and almost by universal consent one of the great chapters of the Bible. Romans chapter 5. Now, you can say that for several chapters in Romans. They're very well known. They just contain the core of what the Christian faith is about. They're pretty involved. They're not easy reading. They're not light reading. They have a lot of concepts that you have to stop and think through. If you're not willing to think with me, you probably won't enjoy the message today, but I'm assuming if you had enough interest to get up and dress and come to church, you probably are interested. And when we get through with these great chapters in Romans, you will have an understanding of the Christian faith, very frankly, like very few Christians have today, because people no longer study God's Word as we once did in Christianity, and some of these concepts are so profound. And I really want you to listen today and follow with me as we are in Romans chapter 5, and I'm only going to read verse beginning in verse 19. Well, let's begin in verse 18 and through the end of the chapter. Please follow. For as by one man's, or, or verse 18, I'm sorry. Therefore, as by the offense of one, that was Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And even so, by the righteousness of one man, that's the Lord Jesus, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. You see, this is full of uh, theological terminology, justification, free gift, righteousness. Continuing, verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, many were made sinners. And so by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense, sin, might abound. But where sin abounded, where it overflowed, where it reached its high tide mark, grace did much more abound. Now that verse is so important. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That verse tells you that grace is more powerful than sin. Grace is greater than sin. It takes away hopelessness, doesn't it? And so what a phrase, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned 
unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Heavenly Father, as I preach your word now, I pray that you will just endue me with your Holy Spirit, that you will guide, that you will come and take over my thoughts, every word that I say. Lord, may it be with truth and honesty. May it be, Lord, with a motivation and a desire to help every single soul sitting in this building this morning. Will you come and may your presence be real. May people sense in their heart that you are here and speaking to them. Guide me, O Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the text this morning is verse 21. As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness and to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at that text with me very carefully. Because the text looks at or conceives of sin and of grace as persons. Uh, It's not an influence that reigns. It's a person who reigns. And so he uses that term there. Sin hath reigned. And then a little later on, that grace might reign. Persons reign. And as I studied this in the uh, the original languages, of course, the nouns are all very much feminine, masculine, neuter, and so on. And both of these nouns here, sin and grace, are feminine. They're female persons. So stop and think with me logically now. A female person who reigns, we call a queen. A female person who has dominion over a political area is a queen. And so the text conceives of sin and death, or sin and grace, as queens, if you will, each of them reigning over a kingdom. And one of the kingdoms, verse 21, sin reigns over death. Not a very attractive option, huh? And grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. And so you have two queens ruling over two dominions, death and life, controlling those areas of existence. Now, sin established her dominion a long time ago because sin was in the world even before grace when Adam sinned of course. And then grace comes, and as you look at the text, you see that they are fighting for control. There's a conflict for dominion between them. And I'd like to look at them, each of them separately. Number one, I'd like for you to think with me about the reign of sin, if you're taking notes with me. The reign of sin. This text says that sin is reigning. Well, what is sin? Let me remind you once more. Let's go back and think about it because I I, want to communicate very simply, if I may. Sin is nothing more than rebellion against God and God's established order. Sin is lawlessness, then we sometimes say. Or another way of describing it is 
Sin is acting independently of God. God says, this is the way, walk in it. And man said, no, and he walks over here on one side or the other. Or another way of describing sin is sin is self-will. Sin is selfishness in opposition, of course, to God's will and to God's plan. And so these little simple definitions serve us as we go through here. Think above all that sin is rebellion and the breaking of God's law. Now, let's think of a man who commits a theft. This man steals something, doesn't matter the size of what it is. He's a thief. There are three different ways to look at what this man has now done. First of all, he has violated the laws of the state of South Carolina or possibly even the federal law. And so by stealing something, this man is a thief. He has committed a crime. And so when we're thinking about law, we think of crime. This man is, there's another way to look at it though. He took something from somebody that didn't belong to him. He did something that we would call evil, or we would call it wicked, or we would call it a vice, perhaps, or immoral, at minimally. He did something immorally. And so he has committed a crime. He has committed an evil deed. He is hurt. He has taken from someone their property. But then there's a third way to look at it. This man has not only committed a crime and an act of evil or wickedness, but he has also committed a sin. He has broken God's law, thou shalt not steal. So there are three different ways that look, uh, of looking at this evil offense. Now, it's possible then to sin, to break God's law, and it not be a crime. It's not a crime to curse and use the name of God in vain, but you're breaking God's law even though you haven't committed a crime, right? And then uh, some evil, uh, we look at it as crime, dealing drugs, but we don't look at it as, we, we don't look at it as, as being, uh, we look at it as a crime if I'm dealing drugs, but we don't think about looking at pornography as being a crime, now, it's an evil in the sight of God. Abortion is something that we look at as being a sin against God and being a terrible evil, a wicked act. But in America today, it's not a crime. It's, in fact, even legal and paid for by our government in many cases. So these three viewpoints come together here, but the one that I really want you to focus on today because it says here, that sin hath reigned. I want you to understand this idea of sin. Now, I, here's what I want you to really get hold of this morning. Sin is always against God. Sin is against God. Crime is against other people. Vice might be against a person. It might be against society. Immorality and evil are more general terms but when we come to sin, sin is always very, very specific. Sin is always against God. And so you remember the story of David in the Old Testament of how David looked at a woman. 
He lusted after her. He took the woman. He conspired to have her husband put into the heat of the battle where the man eventually was killed. And then he tried to cover it up. A horrible, horrible thing. But if in Psalm number uh, 31, you read his confession of sin. And here's what he says as he speaks to the Lord. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. You see, sin is always against God. Sin is against God. Now, if you get a hold of that, you understand why Paul deals so extensively and in such detail with the matter of sin. And so the old queen here, sin, if you will, she reigns over the world, he says. She rules, she governs, she is in control. Now, you know what? People don't want to hear that today. You only get that as you study the Word of God, the Scripture. But generally speaking, people today don't want to hear that sin is reigning and dominating and controlling and ruling over their lives. We like to think of ourselves as being morally neutral and that there's not anything that really does control us. We're free moral agents. We can do what we want. But the book of Romans goes much further and says, oh, no, you just think that. But Sin is into your very genetic structure. Sin rules and reigns in the life of every one of Adam's children. Now, if you don't think that's true, I want to I show you, I want to support my position by turning you to the book of John, chapter number 8. And I'd like for you to turn back there just for a moment, if you will. Jesus Christ is speaking, and he is engaging his, in this dialogue, this debate here with these Pharisees and these religious leaders. And in John chapter number 8, in verse number 34, here's what the Lord said to them. He said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Is the servant of sin. If you commit sins, he said, you are sin's servant. You are sin's slave, if you will. And going back to the book of Romans Turn over there, and I want you to go one chapter further to the book of Romans chapter 6. And if you go down to verse number 16, know you not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servant you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And so again, and I could point you to more places in the Scripture I think that will be enough to make my point that people don't want to think of themselves as being under the dominion and authority and rulership of sin, but the Scripture says that they are. The old queen sin reigns and rules in every single human being's heart. Now, we put a big emphasis here, or we have been putting a great big emphasis in our Sunday school in these Answers in Genesis lesson series We've been putting a big emphasis on developing a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. And by worldview, I mean the way you look at the world. And a biblical worldview means that I look at the world through biblical glasses, if you will, that the Bible colors my perception, my understanding of everything that I look at, the, uh, the Bible forms and shapes my interpretation of life. 
a biblical worldview. And so I was thinking about us here as a ministry, as a church, trying to help people develop and look at life and interpret life through the Scripture. And then two weeks ago, we had the RNC, the Republican National Convention, up in Cleveland, Ohio. Then this past week, all week, we've had the Democrat National Convention in Philadelphia. And I listened to pieces of it. I didn't sit and listen to everything for four nights, obviously, but I watched some of it. Here was what was interesting to me. Here are people who are presenting themselves to be the leaders of our country, to shape and form our society. And I listened to them, and I did not hear one time the word sin ever used. Not one time. Meaning that their worldview and my worldview are oceans apart. That they don't even think that sin is a serious, a serious enough consideration to even ever even mention it one time. Oh, we talk about all kinds of problems. Everybody was telling us how they're going to solve all the problems of the world and of, of the United States. But nobody ever mentioned the root problem because I want to tell you the root problem is S-I-N. It is that man has something broken inside and that man is genetically predisposed to do wrong. And you don't have to teach him as a little child to do wrong. He can lie. He can be selfish. He can do a whole long list of things, and nobody ever has to train him in doing those things. And until the grace of God touches his life, he will pursue that. He'll just do it in a more sophisticated way as he grows older. And nobody, Democrat or Republican, ever mentioned the most basic problem we have in our culture today, the problem that underlies every other problem, man's estrangement from God in sin. In fact, that's the reason God even established civil government, according to Romans chapter 13. The first and primary purpose of civil government, the state, if you will, is to restrain evil to punish the evildoer and to reward those who do good, to hold back this wall of sin that comes down upon every single culture and society. Now, notice what this old queen sins, death has, or what her reign has produced. It's produced death. We've already run across that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The payment the ultimate result and product of sin, the Scripture always tells us, is death. And in many different forms, we think of that as just someone whose physical life has expired. I had the, I had the privilege of visiting quite a number of communist countries back in the late 70s and 80s. And if there's ever been an evil system, it was communism. I'm afraid today that people have forgotten how evil communism is and how really evil socialism is. When I came home, I told my wife, when I was in Romania and Bulgaria and Russia and places like that under the, under the, in the days of communism, 
It was as if the sun didn't shine as bright. It was as if the birds didn't sing as beautifully. It was as if the flowers were not as brilliant in their hues. The whole place was subdued. Evil was so intense you could almost feel it at times and places where I was there. And evil reigned as a system of government in those places, an evil system. It brought death. Fifty-some million people killed so that Mao could take over in red China. Thirty-some million, they estimate, killed in Russia and in the Soviet area of the world so that communism could take over. Evil producing death. But it was not just death physically to people. It was death to their spirit. It was the death of freedom. It was the death, death of initiative. People didn't have the sparkle in their eyes of hope. They didn't anticipate a better future for themselves or for their, or for their children or their families or for their nation. They didn't take initiative because it didn't do any good under socialism to take initiative. They simply worked like drudges. The pastor introduced me to a man. He said he is an outstanding doctor. He's an endocrinologist. When they found out that he was a Christian, they took away his medical practice. And that man now has a medical degree and he sweeps the streets of Bucharest. You see, death to initiative, death to hope, death to freedom. When sin reigns, it always brings death in one form or another. You've been reading the paper, and you've been reading about Turkey, and there was that attempted coup to bring it back to at least some sort of moderate view, and now this Islamic radical Ergodon has taken over, and he is, quote, cleansing the country. Thousands of judges and thousands of pastors and thousands of teachers and anybody who has influence, they're being, quote, cleansed. Right now, they're in jail. All the people that are sympathetic to anything other than radical Islam are being pulled from positions of influence, and death is reigning in the country already. Scores and scores of people are missing. When evil prevails, when sin reigns, death is always the result. But that's also true personally and individually. Don't forget to apply it to, we shouldn't forget to apply it to ourselves. Job chapter 30, verse 23, Job said in his pain, I know, speaking to the Lord, I know that thou will bring me to the death, to the house appointed for all the living. The house appointed for all the living. Why do all the living go to the house of death? We go there because sin reigns. And when sin reigns, death is the product. Open your Bible with me, please, quickly to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, go over to the right, just a few books. Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians 2, the same author, the Apostle Paul here says, 
he talks about spiritual death. Now, you recently, if you're studying with us in Sunday school, we recently had a Sunday school lesson on the fall, how Adam and Eve broke the only law that God gave them, the only command that he gave them. They had one commandment instead of 10 or more. And God said, thou shalt not eat of the tree, and they ate of the tree. And the Lord said to them, in the day that you eat, he had warned them, in the day that you eat, you will die. But then the story goes on. The story goes on for many years and decades after that. They didn't die physically. So was the Lord mistaken when he said to them, you will die if you eat of the tree? No. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 1 explains it. You hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So Adam and Eve died spiritually. They died because they trespassed God's law. They committed a sin against the Lord, as all sin is. And what happened? Well, God had made Adam and Eve human beings, He had made them in his likeness. He had made them at the top of the order of creation and life. The Bible says that he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And the term, the breath of life there is is a Hebrew word, meaning he breathed into him his spirit. And when Adam sinned, here's what happened. Why God said, the day that you sin, you will die. What died? Adam's body didn't die that day. It wasn't physical death. It was spiritual death. And the moment that Adam and Eve tasted of the fruit of that tree, their spirit died. God moved out. The spirit that God had breathed into them, his own spirit, we call the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life, God removed it because a holy God cannot inhabit a sinful being in, that, in the way that it was at that time. And the result of that was it left man separated from God. It left man preoccupied with himself instead of his maker and creator. It left man with no spiritual concern in rebellion against God, subject to physical death. And many years later, of course, Adam died. But spiritual death means I'm dead in my spirit, the part of me that relates to God. I am a trinity. I'm a body. I have a soul, which is the mind, the emotions, and the will. And I have a spirit. And the spirit part of me is what relates to Almighty God. An unsaved man has a soul, body, or mind, emotions, and will. But only a Christian has an energized and living spirit with him when the Holy Spirit comes and enters in at the moment that he receives Christ as his Savior. And so Adam that day died spiritually. He began to die physically and psychologically and emotionally as well. And the fall brought in sin, and nothing has ever been the same since. The natural universe, the creation, the environment, nothing has been the same since came. But above all, sin brought death. Physical death and spiritual death. That's the reign of sin. Now let's look for a few moments at the reign of debt, of grace, the reign of grace. Let me again define grace for you. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace means there's something that I really need from God 
forgiveness and love and acceptance from him, pardon. There's something that I need, but I don't deserve it. And God gives it to me anyhow, so that's grace. Grace, something needed and not deserved. There's an old um, definition of grace that's based upon the acrostic, the letters in the word grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace, something we need, we don't deserve, unmerited favor and acceptance by Almighty God. Now, in John chapter 1 and verse 17, and I won't ask you to turn there with me. In John 1, 17, it says, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the one who brought us grace. Jesus Christ brought grace into the world in a sense that it never had been here before. And this unmerited favor, this undeserved love and acceptance came through our Lord and Savior. Here's a quote from a Christian of the past, and I really love this. Listen very carefully. He said, grace means we can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, the battle with lust and greed and pride still rages within every one of us. As a sinner who has been redeemed, I can now acknowledge that I am often unloving, irritable, angry, and even resentful to those closest to me. And when I go to church, I can leave my white hat at home, and I can admit that I have failed. God not only loves me as I am, but he knows me as I am. And because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics. I really like that term, don't you? I don't have to put on the spiritual cosmetics and hide my blemishes when I come to church to make myself presentable to him. I can accept ownership of my poverty, my powerlessness, and my need. End of quote. And so I go back to the cross. And the centuries down, the centuries have rolled down through the years. And yet the greatest, the high, mar, the high water mark of all history, Jesus Christ nailed to that cross in supernatural darkness because God had blotted out the light. And I hear his anguished cry come out of all the pain of bearing the sins of humanity. He cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, knowing the Bible now, it's as if the answer is, son, I have forsaken you because I'm righteous. I'm a holy God. I'm a just God. 
I have to turn my back and forsake you for a period of time because you are bearing the sins of all of humanity. But I won't forsake you forever because when every sin has been paid for by the shedding of your blood, I'll be able to extend grace and mercy to every single person who ever lived. It's as if I can hear God say that. It's necessary for me to turn my back upon you as you bear the sins of the world because I cannot, as a holy God and a just God, compromise with sin even though I love you greatly. The Bible here says that where sin produced death, notice verse 21, grace produces righteousness and produces eternal life. Now, how does grace produce righteousness and eternal life? Well, like this. God is a God of order. You see it everywhere. He stamped it into the universe in a thousand different ways. We call those things the laws of nature. The truth is they're not the laws of nature. They're the laws of God. This is the way God set the universe up and the way that he created it to operate, to run the processes of, the universe, of nature itself. But they're the processes of God. And so God set it up like this. That we have, for example, the seasons of the year. We have spring, and then we have summer, and then we have fall, and then we have winter. We never have winter following, you know, spring. There's an order. It's been doing that now, and that cycle has been going on ever since the creation of the world. Because God is a God of order. Look at mathematics. Two plus two will always be four. There'll never be five or four and a quarter or three and three quarters. God, as a mathematics, demonstrates the order of the universe reflected from the mind of God himself. God is a God of order. Now, when it comes to our salvation in the spiritual dimension, God is also a God of order. Take your Bible and just go over to the book of, of Romans here, chapter 8. And here is the order that God uses to create righteousness and eternal life for us, as verse 21 talks about. These are the steps that God has always used. Go with me, if you will, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and who he called, he justified, and who he justified, them he glorified. What a wonderful verse. Actually, I should have started reading back in 29. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. And then verse 30, who he predestinated, he called. Now, what does it mean by foreknowledge? Foreknow, whom he did foreknow. Well, it simply means that God knew what people would do. God knows all things. God is omniscient. God knew from the foundation of the world whether Bill Monroe would receive Christ as his Savior or not. And then it says, who he foreknew, he predestinated and elected. So God predetermined that those people who would respond to faith 
in faith to the gospel of Christ, that, he would, that they would be predestinated to his salvation. God predetermined that if you, way out in the future there someday, would respond in faith to the gospel call and receive Christ, that you would be justified. And so the next thing here is, is justification. We've been talking about that, or calling rather. We've, we've been talking about that. That's the Holy Spirit's work in bringing conviction into your heart and drawing you to Christ. If you hear the gospel and you desire to know the Lord Jesus and have a relationship with him, that's the Holy Spirit's work even prior to salvation. And then justification, well, I've preached on that a lot now, haven't I? God declaring us righteous when we put our faith in him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then there's glorification. Looking forward to the day when the physical body that will deteriorate and dissolve at death will be resurrected and we'll be with the Lord and we will be like the Lord Jesus Christ and in his presence. And through that process, the Bible, those are theological terms. I know you didn't come today particularly hear me go over that list of theology, theological terms. But I want you to understand it. It's important you understand. God has a process in the spiritual world just like he does in nature. And God desires your salvation. And it's always the nature of grace to give eternal life. I don't think that there's any teaching that is so contradictory to the book of Romans is the teaching that people can lose their salvation after they've had it. It really, if you think about it, is an insult to the grace of God. Because if I lose my salvation because of sin in my life after having been saved, just think with me. What I'm really saying is that sin is more powerful than grace. That grace did not really abound and overwhelm sin, that sin can overwhelm grace. And again, the book of Romans deals with that right there in chapter number 8. And I'm not going to take the time to read it, but in verses 35 down through the end of the chapter, there's 17 things that the Apostle Paul lists, 17. He says, these things cannot separate us from the love and the grace of God. And so he ends up the chapter with a powerful teaching on the eternal security of the believer, that grace is greater than all of our sins. I think of the words of that wonderful hymn, and it says, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Stop one moment. Think about the sins that you've committed in your life, and think about the guilt that came with those sins. And yet, grace, God's grace, exceeds our sin and our guilt. You've heard of John Newton. I've talked about him and preached about him, used him as an illustration many times before. He was born to an English sea captain. His mother was a godly woman, but died when he was only seven or eight years of age. And Newton went to sea as a little boy, about 12 years old as an apprentice sailor. And there he learned to drink and to curse. He, lived a, how to, he learned how to live a very wicked, wicked life. And he ultimately worked his way up and became a sea captain 
of a slaver. He would go back and forth from the coast of Africa <clears throat> to England ferrying a boat full of slaves. He would go and the tribal chieftains would hand over a whole boatload of slaves to him. He would beat them, put them in irons, put them in the ship and bring them to England where they would be sold. He was growing very, very wealthy. And then one day, unbelievably, he was captured by a group of the slaves themselves who had gained their freedom. And they tied him like a dog with a chain around his neck to a stake. And he became the servant, the slave of slaves. He was in that predicament for several months. And then somehow he managed to escape and to go to the coast of Africa, got on a ship and came back to England. And while on the ship, God began to deal with him about his sins. And when he got back to England, he ultimately came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And nobody will ever forget the name of John Newton because for three or four hundred years, we've been singing the song that he wrote that described his own personal testimony. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And he wrote that wonderful hymn. He studied them for the ministry. He became an Anglican clergyman and pastored at a, ch a church in a little small town only for the next 35, 40 years. And now he's old and he's dying. He's 80. He is blind. He is deaf. And one of his parishioners went to visit him. And here's what he noted in his journal. I saw Mr. Newton near the closing scene. He was hardly able to talk. All I could remember him saying was, quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. John Newton is a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Bow your head with me, if you will, for a moment, please.